1736, Benjamin Franklin wrote, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Something small now, if taken and received, can stave off something much greater at a later point in time. Now, Benjamin Franklin's argument was that a few precautions can hold off something terrible later on. And that's why in my home I have a carbon monoxide detector. I have smoke alarms. I have a lock on my door. It's not because I anticipate dying a fiery death while I'm asleep in my bed, but because I know it can happen. Today, we ask people riding bicycles to wear helmets. People get into cars and strap on seat belts. Airplanes even have life preservers beneath the seats, although I've never figured that one out. You know, you're flying to Kansas somewhere, and you're thinking, now where am I over a body of water? I guess they have to give the same spiel every time you take off. But really, if you're flying to Kansas, do you really need to know there's a life preserver under the seat? I mean, when you crash land in that plane, it's going to do you no good when you land in, in the dust bowl of Kansas. But it's an ounce of prevention. I guess if you landed in water, it'd be nice to know you had a life preserver under the seat. Even at the beginning of the pandemic, when we tried to practice various techniques to prevent the spread of COVID, none of which I think were any good, it was the same idea, though, right? We want a little ounce of prevention. Marines in combat wear helmets and bulletproof vests. They carry gas masks, all defensive gear to prevent catastrophe on the battlefield. That's an ounce of prevention. Now, it may surprise you that in Benjamin Franklin's case, when he wrote this, it was at the beginning of an article that he was writing trying to encourage the people of Philadelphia to adopt the fire prevention safety measures that he had seen while traveling to Boston. He looked at saw all the things they were doing to prevent fires in that city, and he thought, we need to bring this back to Philadelphia. And so he wrote an article, and he began with those famous words, better to invest a little up front than pay a lot later on. I remember a fireman walking through our building. We were talking about the fact that we don't have a sprinkler system here. I, he said, you know, when you build your next building, you're going to have to put one in. They're very expensive. And we were talking about sprinkler systems, and he said, you know, they're expensive. They're kind of a headache. But he said, did you know that not one person in the state of North Carolina has ever died in a fire in a building where there was a sprinkler system working. That's an ounce of prevention, and that's worth a pound of cure. Spiritually speaking, then, how much better to take precautions against sin rather than trying to figure out how to recover from spiritual defeat? I mean, actually, you read, there are a lot of books on how to recover from defeat. There are a lot of, of material and articles and sermons that have been preached on how to get over spiritual defeats. I think better to learn how to keep it from happening in the first place. Too many Christians today fail to recognize that they're in a spiritual battle and they make almost no effort to protect themselves they just float along like a leaf in the stream, moving with the culture, not realizing the importance of protecting oneself against 
Satan's attacks. Now, think about the different kinds of defeats Christians face. Dealing with temptation. Struggling with sinful habits. Culture, that is the culture that is against God. And addictions, even. A lot of Christians find themselves sidelined because they're not equipped to deal with the threats against their walk with God. So they struggle to fight temptation. And after they sin, then they have to deal with the weight of conviction and and sometimes even guilt. They face consequences for their behavior, including things like a loss of trust or anger against them, embarrassment, grief, even feelings of failure. These are the things Peter had after denying Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to go through that. That doesn't sound very appetizing. And this is why I'm saying, spiritually speaking, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And that's exactly what we have in our text. Now, these are not the only tools Scripture gives for preventing spiritual defeat. There are other things like walking in the Spirit, prayer, Bible study, the community of saints. These are also helpful tools for warding off spiritual defeat, decline, dealing with temptation. But in our text, we find Peter falling into sin because he took decisions that were inherently wrong. They're wrong all the time. They're wrong for us to do as well. And by examining this dark episode in Peter's life, I think we can discover some tools to prevent us from facing spiritual defeat. So consider with me, number one. Do not become comfortable in the company of God's enemies. Peter was in the right place, wasn't he? It says in verse 54, they took Jesus and led him and brought him to the high priest's house. And where's Peter? It says he's following at a distance. Peter is still, even at this point, a follower of Jesus. Luke writes that he was close behind. Not, not as close as he should have been, but he was behind Jesus. He was following, Matthew writes, at a distance. We might add he was at a safe distance, right? But Peter was now following Jesus on his own terms. Jesus had said, stay with me. Be close to me. Peter was following afar off. Jesus had been the one calling the shots for three and a half or so years. And now Peter is the one in charge of his discipleship. He followed Jesus to the place of the Lord's trial, which was the courtyard of Caiaphas' home. Luke completely ignores Jesus being taken to Annas, and then later Jesus being taken to Herod. He, he ignores those stories. What he has here is just this one story, Jesus in the courtyard of Caiaphas. As you know, many of the homes of the day were built with kind of a wall around them that actually included a courtyard in the front of the home. So you'd walk into the courtyard and then you would get to the living quarters. It was a measure of safety. It also provided a gathering place for people to stand, to be. And here in the courtyard, Peter is following Jesus. Matthew 26, 58 says the reason he was there is because he wanted to see the outcome 
what would actually occur at the end of this situation that Jesus was in. So Peter, I think, is in the right place. But he's now, letter B, with the wrong people. It says in verse 55, when they had kindled a fire. Who are the ones kindling the fire? Go back to verse 54. When they led Jesus, when they led him, who are the they? It says, these are the people that actually arrested Jesus. They went into the Garden of Gethsemane with swords and, and with clubs to arrest Jesus. These are the they. And it says here, at the end of verse 55, Peter sat down among them. Do you see that pronoun? These who arrested Jesus, who took him bound to Caiaphas, they start a fire, and Peter sits down among them. He's now getting comfortable in the company of God's enemies. These are the people working for the Sadducees who denied eternal life, who denied angels and the supernatural, basically denied the Old Testament. These are the very enemies of God. And while they're warming their hands over the fire that they kindled in the courtyard of Caiaphas, while Jesus is on trial, Peter is also warming his hands with them. Can I tell you the principle, friends, has been the same for thousands of years. Don't company with God's enemies when they're working to overthrow the rule of God. Christians have no business aligning themselves with those who hate Him, who hate God. We should be friendly with people in the world. We should befriend them in hopes of bringing them to Christ. But we should never be in league or accord with the very things that they are doing that are against God. And I think, at the least, this means we have to limit our entertainment choices. And here's looking at you, Disney. I was shocked and dismayed when a, a couple of nights ago, maybe a week ago, my wife and I sat down and watched the latest Pixar film, Made for Children. It was crass. It was crude. It was idolatrous. At one point, the mother, at the beginning of this film, sits down with her child. They kneel down in front of an altar where an ancestor's picture is above her. They begin to pray to the ancestor to take care of them, just like you would pray to, to, to Jesus. And then the mom says, we don't worship gods, we worship our ancestors. And I was thinking, can you imagine if the next Pixar film began with a family sitting around a table and dad opens up a Bible and begins talking to his wife and, and their children about Jesus Christ? Could you imagine the outcry? I can, because I learned a couple of days ago that the next Pixar film is also going to include the very same elements. It's got actually uh, a main character. One of the main characters of the film apparently is living in a gross, immoral situation that they put on display in the film. My friends, I'm just going to tell you, 
I have no intention of watching it. If I'd known the other one was going to be like it, I wouldn't have watched that. And I would encourage you not to watch it. Why would we align ourselves with the very people who are against God? Why would we align ourselves with the people who hate Jesus? And I, and I was sitting there thinking this week, you know, there's going to come a time, and it may not be that far off, where I won't be able to go to Disney World anymore. That, that day may come. Some of you young kids thinking, I can't wait to take my kids. It may happen that we can't go anymore. But I think at the least it means limiting our entertainment choices. I, I think past that, we may start after thinking where we can even work or not. I mean, there are some jobs, obviously, that you can't do because they're grossly immoral. But there, there may be more jobs that are involved in things like this. I'm going to be talking to a group of college students next month about how to make decisions for Christ. And I'm going to start with a, a fictional story of a college student who's offered a job working for Pixar. I'm setting them up, you know. It's going to be awesome. You know, if you can't watch the movie, could you, could you work on making the movie? It may be that we even have to start limiting where we can work. I think this has been coming along for, a, for quite a while, but I, I think we're going to have to consider non-secular education options for, for our families, even through college. The stuff I've been reading coming out of some of the schools in the Northeast what in the world is going on at the University of Pennsylvania? Did you read about their swimmer this past week? Are we living on another planet? Can Christians align themselves with that? Can we? Everybody is just looking at me, waiting for me to say the next thing. You know, it's like, he's going to slip up. I know, he's going to say something really bad. He's going to cross that line. I've written it all out. So I've protected myself here. Hey, I'm just asking you the question. I want you to answer it. But I got to tell you, I don't want my children sitting in front of a woman or a man, a teacher, who claims to be a gender different from his biological birth gender, saying that's normal. And I certainly don't want them talking to third graders about sexuality. When did that start? I, I, I apparently have been asleep. Asleep at the wheel. And there may be other places we can go and not go. There may be places we just say, you know, as a Christian, I, I can't go there. I can't be a part of that. That's, that's all about just saying, I'm not going to align myself with people. I'm not going to be comfortable with people who are against God. I'm not going to be in their company and be comfortable there. I may be there for the purpose of leading them to Christ. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. More power to you. You should be there for that reason. There are a lot of places that are awful. You, you know, I, you ever been to Las Vegas? You've got to cover your kids' eyes. You walk down the sidewalk. Doesn't mean you shouldn't start a church there. That's probably the best place to start a church. Uh, one of the pastors of yesteryear, along with the Lord, said, I, you'd like to build a church at the gates of hell. Keep people out. I think that's great. 
I'd have to start a church there. I don't know that you can go vacation there. I don't know. These are just questions you have to ask yourself. Now, that's the first tool in preventing spiritual defeat. Not being comfortable in the company of God's enemies. There's a second tool here. And the second tool builds off of the first, I think. And it's number two, always take opportunities to confess Christ before others. Peter denied knowing Jesus. You see it in verse 56. Here's this little girl, uh, a maid girl there working for the high priest. And as she beheld him as he sat by the fire, she looked at him earnestly and said, this man was with Jesus, with him. And then it says, he, that's Peter, denied him, that's Jesus. Peter denied Jesus saying, to the woman, I know him not. Now, that young maid is an observant young lady, right? She, she looks at, at Peter for some time. She's maybe staring at him. The flames uh, causing the light to kind of flicker off of his face. And she's looking at him, maybe uh, turned her head a bit, staring at him. And I've seen you before. And I never forget a face. That's what she's thinking. And she's looking at him and she says, oh, I know. I've seen, I know where I've seen you. You were with Jesus. And, and, and when she recognized Peter as one of the disciples, Peter rejects the maid's observation out of hand. He turns away her observation by outright lying about his relationship with Jesus. Think about this for a moment. His sandals are still wet from the dew of Gethsemane while out of his mouth is saying, I don't know Jesus. The sword he used to strike off Malchus's ear is still dripping with blood and poking him in the side while he's saying, I'm not with Jesus. Denied the Lord. And then he follows it up with another denial, verse 58. A little while after, another saw him and said, you are also one of them. Peter said, man, I am not. Second observer points out Peter was a disciple of Jesus. And a short interval of time between the first and second pointing out. Can you, can you think of what's going on in Peter's mind? I don't know about you, but if I had been Peter after the first time and after the conversation that had happened within the previous 24 hours where Jesus actually said to him, you're going to deny me three times, would you still be standing around that fire? I mean, practically speaking, maybe I need to go. They're starting to recognize me here. I need to go somewhere else. Peter's still standing there. And after a short period of time, the man says, you're one of them. And he says, no, I'm not. I'm not one of them. My friends, the first step in discipleship is identity with Jesus. The first stage in discipleship, the very first steps of being a follower of Jesus it begins with baptism. It's saying, I am identifying with Jesus. That's what baptism does. It says, I'm with him. I'm on his team. The very next step after that is to become part of a local church, to become part of a church family, to put yourself under the church's authority, not the pastor's authority, but the church's authority, to place yourself under that authority and then begin working within that church, serving within that church to the glory of God. That, that's identity. I'm, I'm, I'm a believer in baptism. I'm a believer in church membership. 
I'm, I'm a believer now in serving within the local church, all of that. I'm a believer. I'm identifying as a believer with Jesus Christ. And what Peter is doing at this moment is saying, I'm not a believer. He was, but he's saying he's not. He's denying his own salvation. And one scholar said when Peter entered into that courtyard, he was caught between courage and cowardice, but now he's a full-blown coward. Even secular people have sacrificed themselves for others for principles they believed in. And it had nothing to do with God at all. I mean, in high school, I had to read the tale of two cities, didn't you? You, you get to the end of that book, and what does the guy say? It's a far, far better thing that I'm doing than I've ever done, as he's giving himself up for his beloved and her, and her man. He's trading places with the guy. It's a far, far better place I'm going to than I've ever known. Isn't that how the book finishes? I, I know I read the last page at least. <laughs> I read the first page, right? has that kind of famous little poem at the beginning, the last page. That's kind of like reading the whole book. Secular people will give up their lives for others, but Peter, he wouldn't die alongside Jesus. I, I, I try to think of what would have happened if Peter had. If he had actually said, wait, no, I'm with Jesus. Maybe they would have crucified Peter too. Maybe not. But I'm going to tell you, he would have been considered the greatest apostle of all time, regardless of what the Catholic Church says. I mean, everybody puts that little crown on Paul's head, but it would have been Peter. It would have been Peter. But instead, he denies the Lord a second time. And third, he denies knowing anything even about Jesus. Let her see. About the space of an hour. So the whole time the trial is going on across the courtyard, Peter is standing maybe close enough to hear voices, but far enough away. He's standing far enough away where he can't really tell what's going on. And an hour goes by and another person says, I know you're with this fellow because you are a Galilean. And of course, if you know about Jesus's ministry, you know why Galilean was so important. And Peter said, man, I know not what you are saying. I don't even know what you're talking about. If the first was, I'm not with Jesus, and the second was, was, was even more, I'm, I'm not one of his disciples. Now he says, I don't even know what you're saying. I'm so far removed. And, and I think it's significant that one of the other Gospels records, at this point, he begins to curse and to swear. Why does he do that? Because now he says, I'm going to fully identify with unsaved, worldly people. I'm going to be part of that clan and that group. And he identifies himself with them. I love the way the witness, he's so confident, he says, I know it's you. He says, I'll prove it's not me. I'll use a language that'll show nobody who's with Christ will ever use this kind of language. And, and I think, friends, this is a great preemptive measure we can all learn to develop an open testimony before the world that we are with Jesus. Living your Christian life in secret. And I understand if you're a little older, there was a, there's kind of a cultural thing with, with 
the greatest generation, as they're called, the World War II generation. There's kind of a religion's a private matter. I don't really talk about religion. If there's anything about the younger culture is I'm going to share everything with you, right? I'm going to share, I'm going to share it all, and I'm going to put it out for the whole world to see on TikTok. There you go. My whole life. Here's what I have for supper. Here's where I sleep. I know it's not made. My bed's not made. Here's my car. Here's the trash. I mean, it's just everything. Here's how I dance in the morning when I'm getting ready to jump in the shower. I mean, it's just, I don't need to see all of that. That's the younger culture, right? The older culture is I'm not going to show you anything. And unfortunately, part of that older culture thinking is I'm not going to show you my faith. And I'm just telling you, you know, the best things you can do is just let the whole world know you're a Christian. Just let everybody know. Tell your friends you're a Christian. Tell, tell, be outspoken on social media that you are a follower of Jesus. Tell them, tell them you're a Christian. How, how about this? Share your faith with people in your neighborhood that you're a Christian. Your neighbor across the street should know. My, my neighbor is coming over to my house on Friday night. I'm so excited. He's an unbeliever. And uh, he and his wife, their family, and I was leaving the house this morning and I had my suit jacket slung over my arm and I said, headed off to work. Waved to him. Anthony, good to see you. Headed off to work. He just kind of smiled and said, good to see you, Matt. And we had a nice exchange of pleasantries. I thought, someday I'm going to look at you and you're going to be walking out that door to come to my church. That's my goal with you, Anthony. He doesn't know. I, the poor guy's got a big target <laughs> on his back. Share your faith with people in your neighborhood. Let your family know that you love Jesus. Just tell everybody you meet that you love Jesus. I, I was, I've been frequenting a barbershop around the corner. The young lady there is 28 and uh, unsaved. And I, I have a goal to bring her and her boyfriend to Christ. Um, and uh, I've now... This is my third time going to see her. And I, I walked in, I sat down, and she said, Well, Matt, how's the flock? <laughs> All right, we're getting there, right? Starting to develop that rapport. That's good. That's good. Let everybody know. When I'm golfing by myself, one of the first things I do is tell everybody I'm with. I, I start off by saying, Hey, what do you do? And uh, usually they're retired because I try to play during the week when it's not as busy, they'll say, well, I used to do X, Y, and Z. And then it leads them to say, naturally, and what do you do? Which gives me the opportunity to say, well, I pastor church. Now, it doesn't mean as much as it used to, I found out. When I was in my 20s and 30s, I'd say that all the bad language would go away. It's not quite as, it's not quite as foolproof anymore. I, I will never forget standing on a tea box down in Wilmington before my... Uh, sister-in-law's wedding, her pastor, a deacon from that church, my dad and I were golfing together on the sat uh, the Friday before the Saturday wedding, and we're out there, and it was just having we're having a great time. And the guy in the little starter's car rode up beside me, and and he said, "Hey, uh, you want to hear a joke?" And I'm standing on the tee box with my driver in my hand, thinking, "Oh no, oh no, no." And this guy starts telling a dirty joke. And I just turned and walked off the tee box and walked about 20 feet away. And I'm watching him now tell his dirty joke to my dad. That was a big mistake. Because my dad 
stopped him before the punchline and said, young man, and I guess young man, the guy was my age or older, but he said, young man, that is really inappropriate. And, and then the guy is just groveling. I'm so sorry. I hope I didn't offend any of you. Ha, 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 it's really funny, but I'm so sorry. And I walked over to the guy while he was groveling and said, hey, you need to understand. I'm a pastor. This gentleman, my father, he's a pastor. This guy over here is a pastor. And this is the deacon from this guy's church. And we're all believers. We're all followers of Jesus. And then he said, oh, I'm a Christian too. Great news. And instead of going around telling people on the golf course about your Christ, you go around telling dirty jokes. Now let's rehash all of this for a moment. I can prevent spiritual defeat by not becoming too comfortable with God's enemies, being in their company. I'm just going to be on my guard. I can prevent spiritual defeat by openly confessing Christ every opportunity I have. Then finally, this is the third point, run to Christ in times of spiritual crisis. Peter was convicted by two things here. The text says immediately at the end of verse 60, while he was speaking, while he's denying Jesus, while the swear words are leaving his mouth, the spittle coming out as he's vehemently denying Jesus, the rooster starts crowing. Loud, cacophonous sounds are ringing through his ears. And at that moment, from across the courtyard, verse 61 says, there's no verbal communication. It's all nonverbal. Jesus is in the middle of his trial. Jesus hears the rooster crow. And Jesus, who had not at this point even acknowledged Peter's presence, Jesus turns and looks across the courtyard. And for a moment, their eyes meet. And then Peter remembers the words Jesus said. You will deny me. Can you get the picture in your head? The, the, the violent, filthy language is leaving his mouth. The rooster is crowing. And while the next word is forming in his mind to speak, he sees Jesus turn his head and stare at him. And his mind is flooded with the words of Jesus. Now, that's what the words of Jesus does, right? It convicts the heart. This is the convicting power of God's word. That which is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to dividing asunder of soul and spirit and, and between the joints and marrow, the seemingly indivisible. It is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That's what God's word does. It's profitable for doctrine, for teaching, for reproof, for that conviction. That's what God's words does. And Peter is instantly stunned. The very thing he had claimed hours earlier that he would never do, he did. And it reminds me of Paul in Romans 7. The things I don't want to do, those are the things I do. The things I want to do, those are the things I don't do. And I find in me this law that even when I would do good, Evil is present with me. Even when I would do good, evil's right there. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from the body of this death? And that's when he says, but thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. 
who's given me the victory in Christ. And then he says, so there is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. It's, it's beautiful. And it's awful. It's awful because we've all been there. That stunning moment when we realize the very things we hate are the things we're doing. The very things we despise is what we've become. The very things we shun and run from are the things we're running toward and we feel wretched. And how do we then respond? Because look at verse 62. What does Peter do next? This to me is the most important verse of the entire section. He went out. What a mistake. There's the mistake. He runs and weeps. And people take this for repentance. And I don't take this for repentance at all. At all. If, if Peter's repenting here and reconciling in his heart with God, we wouldn't have John 21 in my mind. Peter's just sad and sorry. He runs from the Lord. His initial reaction is to turn away from Christ, not from his sin. That's repentance, to turn away from sin. This is the opposite of what he should have done because now he leaves Jesus alone to suffer his fate. And he weeps bitterly, but not practically. He should have turned from sin. That's what repentance is. It's a complete disavowal of sin. And, and listen, you can hate your sin because of what it brings into your life. And you might even share, shed tears over your sin. And you can go and quote John, 1 John 1, 9 till you're blue in the face. But confessing your sin or even saying you're sorry is not as valuable if you plan on sinning again. Amen. It's not repentance if you're just going to get up and sin again. It's not repentance if you don't totally get rid of what's wrong. I grew up at a school with a bunch of rules. I mean, they had rules upon rules. They've gotten rid of most of them now. My children don't even understand. Now, my dad says the same thing to me, so I guess it's a generational thing. You know, when son, when I went to school there, it was really hard. And it was hard. I mean, they had one phone on the hall. You had to wear a coat and tie to dinner. I mean, it was hard. You go out and play soccer at 5 o'clock sun and then go back and take a shower. You're still sweating while you're putting on that coat. Headed off and it's 98 degrees with 90% humidity. Headed to a room with no air conditioning. That's okay. That's, that's hard. I get it. But I grew up with all these rules and, and I figured out the way to get around the rules. You know the way to get around the rules was? Always confess to something you did that was lesser from what you really did. It was, it was, it was the perfect answer. So they would call you in and they would say, we know you did X, Y, and Z. They'd say, no, I didn't do that. But what I actually did was this. And it was always something a whole lot lesser. And then because you were confessing, they would go, oh, okay. And then they would deal with you. You get five demerits instead of 50. You know, you walk out. and It's beautiful. My senior high school, the principal called me into his office. He said, Matt, we can figure you out. You're getting away with everything. And you never get any demerits. How do you do it? And I told him, well, let me tell you my secret. I only have, I only have about three weeks left here, so I'll give you my secret. Here's my secret. Here's what I've been doing. I'll never forget the poor girl standing next to me in line named Lynn, blonde-headed gal, and truly, truly, I... She was the proverbial blonde-headed person, okay? I'm sorry, blonde-headed ladies. Poor Lynn. She stood in line at discipline committee one day, and here's what she said. Now, if I tell you something I did that you don't know about, will you let me off of this that you do know about? And I am behind her going, oh, you are so stupid. What are you doing to yourself? And the guy looks at her and says, no, but you should tell me what you did 
that we don't know about. And she told me, gave him demerits for both things. And I'm thinking, you, you've got it backwards. You haven't figured this out yet. But you know, it's not really repentance if you only confess to a little bit. It's a full and complete vetting. Everything has to come out. And I lied. And I was angry. And then I did this, and I did this, and I did this. And then I said these things. It, ha it has to be complete. It, it can't be just, well, I made a mistake. Well, I was just wrong here. It was an accident. Peter wasn't repenting. Peter was running from Christ, not from his sin. He should have run to Christ and returned to the Lord's service. Do, do you realize the people standing in their fire, unless they lived long enough to read Luke, never came to realize that Peter was one of Jesus' followers, perhaps? Could Peter have not at least at the moment of conviction said to these people in true repentance, I've been lying to you. I really am with him. Wouldn't that have been real repentance? Would you moms be happy if your children repented by not actually telling the truth to the people around them? You would never allow that. Why do we allow Peter out? Just because he's crying. I think in Western culture, especially since the Victorian age, Tears just move us to everything, you know, person cry, especially a man. You see a man cry, I mean, it, you know, life stops. We have to show compassion. There's tears. You don't know the poor guy had an onion out earlier. It's kind of... I think Peter's shedding useless tears. He doesn't reconcile with Jesus until much later. He actually, in fact, he was called to become a fisher of men after Jesus even rises from the dead. He knows Jesus is risen. What does he say to his disciple friends? I'm going fishing. I'm going back to my old occupation. It isn't until Jesus says, Peter, I want you to feed my lambs and feed my sheep that he returns to the Lord's service. You know, as I read this story this week, here's my conclusion. I'm just glad Peter didn't pull a Judas. That's where I'm at. Because he's sorrowing without repentance. My friends, this is the solution. Run to Christ. That is always the answer. Stand with him. In the hour of temptation, run to Christ. In the midst of great sorrow, run to Christ. In the middle of spiritual battle, run to Christ. In need of help, run to Christ. Sharing your faith with others, run to Christ. Your testimony, is it under attack? Run to Christ. Surrounded by God's enemies, run to Christ. Feeling alone, run to Christ. Frustrated by failures, run to Christ. Hungry for God, run to Christ. Needing encouragement, run to Christ. Needing motivation, run to Christ. In moments after you've sinned, run to Christ. In time of grief, run to Christ. Friends, there is never a moment where you are not taught, draw nigh to God, and He will draw nigh to you. Always. Every time. Years ago, there was a pastor friend. He's with the Lord now. He had a problem with ulcers in his stomach. It led to an operation in which he almost died. The doctors actually had to reform, his, take out most of his stomach. He had a little tiny pouch at the bottom of his esophagus that kind of collected the food. He could only eat little bites. In fact, 
I took him to lunch over at a real nice restaurant here in town. He ordered the most expensive thing on the menu and ate three bites. And I'm going, okay, you knew. <laughs> and he's like, I'll take it back to my room. I'm going to eat this thing. Well, he was having trouble sleeping. Couldn't sleep because of, of the issues involving his stomach. And so his doctor said to him, you know what I would recommend? Just take a little shot of whiskey every night before bed. And you can get to sleep. That was his doctor's advice. Now, good lesson learned. You don't need to follow everything your doctor says. He gives you narcotics. You go flush those down the toilet. You don't need those. Don't fill that prescription. I, I, <laughs> there are too many people who have gotten addicted to narcotics because their doctor gave it to them. Well, he was, he was a drunk. He's pastoring a church, and he's a drunk. And here he was one day down downtown Virginia Beach, and he's completely and totally drunk, and the police arrested him in the middle of the day for public intoxication. And he's a pastor of a church. Well, they fired him. And what did he do? What do you do? He ran to Christ. He said, I need help for this addiction. You know, his father had been a drunk. That's actually what led him to Christ. His father was an unsaved alcoholic. And here he was repeating his father's sins as a pastor. And after he was fired from his ministry, he repented of his sin. He turned back to Christ. He ended up serving the Lord in various ministries. He never went back to the pastorate. He couldn't do that. But he ended up becoming an advocate for missionaries, even a mission group in Puerto Rico, where a whole bunch of men would come from other countries to study. And he would do that. And do you know what our church did? We supported him in that ministry because he'd run back to Christ. Friends, don't be company. Don't be comfortable with the company of God's enemies. Openly confess Christ at every opportunity and run to him when you need him. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you for your words today. This is your book. It teaches us what we need to do to prevent spiritual defeat. Before I finish praying, how many of you say, Pastor, this is what I need. I've been struggling with some things in my life. And I need to implement some tools. Maybe they're not even these tools. I mentioned others. Walking in the Spirit. Prayer. Bible study. The community of saints. But you're here to say, Pastor, these are some tools that I need to prevent spiritual defeat. I've been struggling. Would you pray for me? Anybody like that? Slip up your hand. I want to pray for you. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Anybody else? Pastor, pray for me. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Anybody else? Yes, ma'am. Anyone else? Yes, thank you. Thank you. Yes. Praise God. Anybody else? Pastor, pray for me. I want to pray for you. Lord, you see where, where we're at. We need your help. Help us to learn these practical things to do to keep us from falling. We'll never be perfect in this life. We know that. But boy, we want to do the best we can because we love you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The piano will play during a hymn of invitation. You stand to your feet and you pray along with her. As she plays, you pray along with each other. Encourage each other in prayer. There are some who need your prayers right now. You pray as she plays. <laughs>